Well, good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. We're happy that you're worshiping here with us today. Now, much like the creation account of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, which we read a couple weeks ago, the story of Noah's Ark has been the source of study and debate amongst Christians and non-Christians alike. This story has captured people's imaginations for generations. And our generation is no different. People are still fascinated by this story. In 2007, a comedy was inspired by Noah's Ark, known as Evan Almighty. In 2014, a much more dramatic movie was released based off of Noah's Ark. That movie starred Russell Crowe, and the title was simply Noah. On top of that, if you turn on the History Channel, you can often find documentaries about different stories in the Bible, and the story of Noah's Ark is a particularly popular one. Though I should warn you that those documentaries can be questionable at best. In about three hours from here, you can visit a life-size replica of Noah's Ark in Williamstown, Kentucky. An organization called Answers in Genesis spent nearly $150 million on this attraction, And in the first year it was open, it brought in approximately one million visitors. To this day, explorers and archaeologists still go on quests to try and find the remains of Noah's Ark, knowing that if they somehow find it, they will be forever rich and famous. And then, of course, if you go to a toy store, you may find something like this. This, of course, is Noah's Ark. Now, I would argue that it's not entirely faithful to the biblical account. For example, Noah is far too big for this, for this ark to fit all the other animals. On top of that, he has a bird on his shoulder. That's nowhere in Scripture, not included in Scripture. But, nonetheless, it can be perhaps a useful tool to help your kids learn a little bit more about the story. So it's not surprising that Noah's Ark would be the source of so much interest, because it truly is an epic story. But we have to ask, do we really know the story as well as we think we do? So, for example, take that toy. It's not exactly to scale. Noah and the animals look much more happy than they likely did in the Genesis account. And that Ark is much more cute and colorful than the real one would have been. Now, you might think that sounds silly, but there are other myths that we've assumed about the story of Noah's Ark as well. We might assume myths that make the story a little less disturbing or a little more cheerful. But in reality, the story of Noah's Ark is a mixture of thought-provoking, shocking, hard-to-swallow, awe-inspiring, and maybe even generally unpleasant. Because if you actually look at Scripture in all of its nitty-gritty detail, you find that this might not be the kind of story that you want painted on the walls of the nursery at church. When you really read the story, you may even find yourself asking big questions, wondering things like, man, what can this story possibly teach us about the kind, gracious, and loving God that we Christians claim To worship. Because this story presents God in a light that is sometimes scary. But we're going to attempt to figure out what this story teaches us about God this morning. So, with that, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, 
feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But let's pray together as a church before we read our story. Father, thank you again for this time we have together. I pray that we would come to your word with open hearts and open minds and open ears to what you have to say, even when it's scary, even when it's intimidating, even when it's sometimes hard to understand or causes us to ask questions that we like to avoid. But Father, I pray that we would come to your word and let you speak how you see fit. Father, we ask that you be with us this morning for the rest of our time together, that our worship would be glorifying to you and building up to us, that we would be encouraged and challenged and convicted, all the things that Sunday morning can do. I pray that you would use Sunday morning in a way appropriate to each of us, from everywhere that we come and everywhere that we're going, everything that we're dealing with. Speak to us through your word and through this service how you see fit. We thank you for Christ who died for us. We thank you that he rose from the grave, and we ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, by the time we get to Noah in Genesis chapter 6, the world is very different from the reading we've done so far in chapters 1 through 3. By this time, Adam and Eve are gone. They've died just like God said they would in the Garden of Eden. But the ripple effect of Adam and Eve's sin lives on long after they've passed. You could say that the forbidden fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. Their children inherit their sinful nature. And it seems as though over time, the world gets worse and worse. So by the time Noah enters the scene, the world is a very dark place. So for example, in Genesis chapter 4, we see the sins of improper worship, anger, jealousy, vengeance, and murder with the story of Cain and Abel. We see polygamy enter the picture through a man named Lamech. And then in the first few verses of Genesis chapter 6, sexual sin runs rampant. Many will argue from those verses that fallen angels were having unnatural sexual relationships with human women. But regardless of what one thinks about those admittedly bizarre verses, starting out chapter 6, the main point that we come to is clear. The main point is that by the time Noah enters the scene, the sin of Adam and Eve has made the world a horrible, horrible place. And so we pick up in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his art was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The world is so bad that God repents of having made it. Now, it's not that God has changed. 
He's still the same as he was before. But as the world has changed, as the world has gotten worse, God's relationship with the world has changed as well. Look at the words that the author of Genesis uses to describe the world in this passage. Words like wicked, evil, corrupt, and violent. He even says that this goes down to every thought and every intention of man's heart. Again, it is a dark, dark place. So as a result, God decides to send a flood. You could say that this is a recreation of sorts. The world will return to its physical state in Genesis chapter 1, when the Spirit of God hovered above the chaos of the waters, kind of like a flood. But the good news is that God won't annihilate the world entirely. He won't give up completely on mankind. Because there's one man who seems a little bit different from the rest of his generation. One man whose life is not marked by wickedness, evil, corruption, and violence. And that man, of course, is Noah. We pick up in verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. But make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you and your sons shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So God takes the initiative to call Noah and his family into this obedient relationship with him and call him out of the destruction that will soon come. God's commands are very clear. Build an ark. Bring your family. Bring animals and food with you. That way you'll survive the flood and repopulate the earth when it's all over. This ark would measure somewhere around 440 feet long, 73 feet wide, and 44 feet tall. Altogether, the best estimate we can come up with is that there would have been about 95,000 square feet of deck space. That is a big boat. Now, of course, there's disagreement about how many animals there actually were. What does Genesis mean when it says kinds and sorts? Likewise, there's disagreement about how big the flood was. It certainly sounds like a global flood, 
but some will argue that it was regional or local. But the main point is this, that however far the flood may have stretched, however big it might have been, the main idea is that it was big enough to kill everything not on the ark. God makes that very clear. But not only are God's commands to Noah clear, Noah's obedience is clear as well. Genesis chapter 6, verses 22, set the tone for Noah's life, at least until chapter 9. Noah says, rather God says, that Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. We see it emphasized in chapter 7 as well, verses 9 and 16. As God had commanded Noah. As God had commanded Noah. Noah does exactly what God tells him to do. Now, interestingly, at this point in the story, Noah hasn't said a single word. But we've already learned quite a bit about him. We've learned that he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And we learned that he did all that God commanded him. And that's a good thing, considering what's coming. Starting in chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, this is the part of the story where there's nothing cheery or cute and cuddly. This is the part that is scary. Because so far, for all but one family on the planet, this becomes a story about sin, judgment, destruction, and death. It truly is a catastrophe. And as we say sometimes in the insurance business, it was an act of God. Now, at first glance, the story seems to run directly counter to the kind, gracious, and loving God that we Christians talk about so much. You would read this story, and you couldn't be blamed for wondering, what does it possibly teach us about God? Now, we'll talk about that more in a moment, but for now, let's dive back into the story of Noah. Dive back in. See what I did there? <laughs> Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. Verse 13. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month... On the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, 
Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So God is faithful to his word to Noah. The earth is damaged, but not annihilated. And Noah's family is probably a little bit seasick, but they are alive. But going back even further, God isn't just faithful to his word to Noah. He proves himself faithful to his word to Eve. Remember back in Genesis 3? God told Eve that one of her offspring would defeat the serpent who deceived her into sin. Someday the curse would be reversed and someday mankind would be redeemed. Surely that's part of why God wasn't willing to annihilate humanity entirely. He made a promise to Eve, a promise of redemption, and God doesn't break his promises. So the flood subsides, the ground dries, the ark empties out. And it appears that humanity and the rest of creation have a fresh start. Think back two weeks ago when we read Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Think about all those things God told Adam and Eve to do before they sinned. Before they sinned, God had told them to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Eat and enjoy the fruit of the plants and the trees. Well, now God tells Noah and his family to do the same things. It truly is a fresh start. And you almost wonder if things will turn out better this time around than it did with Adam and Eve. God even commits to never again send a flood that would destroy all flesh. And he gives Noah a rainbow as a sign to prove it. So it really does look like a clean slate. And in a very real way, Noah looks like a new and improved Adam. But before we see how Noah's story ends, you may have a few questions. As I mentioned earlier, the story of Noah's Ark, at least when you read it straight from Scripture, rather than the toned-down versions that we often read, the real story can be a little bit jarring. So one of the biggest and most difficult questions that may arise after reading the story goes something like this. Why would God do this? Why would God send this flood? Why would God cause this much destruction on such a large scale? Well, a few thoughts. Number one, the truth is that in the book of Genesis, 
God isn't the one who unleashed all this sin into the world. Adam and Eve disobeyed. And if they only would have heeded God's warning, the flood would have never been needed. In fact, God would have been perfectly justified in wiping out humanity then and there, back in the Garden of Eden. But in his kindness, he didn't. Another consideration is the horrible state of the world that we encounter in between the stories of Adam and Eve and the story of Noah. If the world was half as bad as the verses we read earlier present it, then God had every right to judge the world how he saw fit, whether through a flood or something else. And then one more observation is that this story gives us a glimpse into just how seriously God takes the problem of sin. You might read the story of Noah's Ark or other Old Testament stories and say, you know, it seems like God is a lot more harsh with sin in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. It seems like God is much meaner in the Old Testament than he is in the New. Well, before you're tempted to think that, remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus says there, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. That is Jesus saying, If you lead one of my disciples into sin, you are better off drowning than facing the judgment of God. So don't be tempted to say that the God of the Old Testament or the God of Noah's Ark is worse or meaner or more harsh than the God of the New Testament. It simply isn't true. And then on top of that, let's be honest. If you really want to see just how seriously God takes sin, don't look at the story of Noah's Ark. Look at the story of the cross. God takes sin so seriously that his perfect son's death is required to atone for it. That is how dark and deep and powerful sin really is. So it's true that Noah's Ark does tell us a little bit about the problem of sin and how seriously God views sin. But we see it even more clearly when we look at the cross. Now those thoughts might provide a little bit of clarity, but then there's still the difficult truth. And the difficult truth is that God doesn't owe any of us an answer for how he does things. Job asked God the same question when God allowed him to suffer the loss of everything he had. Job simply asked, why would God do this? It seems cruel. It seems harsh. It seems unfair. But when Job finally gets his hearing with God at the end of the book, after 35 chapters of complaining and 35 chapters of asking those hard questions, after all that, God's response to Job is short and simple. God looks at Job and says, Job, may I remind you that I'm God and you're not. So the straight, hard-to-swallow answer to this question of why would God do this? Or why would God do that? The truth is that sometimes we just don't know. Now, that doesn't mean that we should stop asking hard questions entirely. It doesn't mean that we should bottle up doubts and fears and worries when they arise. 
It doesn't mean that we should refuse to engage the difficult questions of life simply because they're challenging. But it does mean that there is a certain wisdom and a certain humility in being willing to say that we don't know the answer to that question. And God is under no obligation to tell us. Now, another question that may arise is something like this. Does God still judge people with natural disasters? Televangelists have made a lot of money over the years suggesting that every tornado, every hurricane, every earthquake, every tsunami is an act of God's judgment. And somehow, miraculously, they always know exactly who he's judging. They always know exactly who he's targeting. Well, at the very least, we have to acknowledge that God at least allows natural disasters to occur in our fallen world. But that doesn't mean that God sent them as a direct act of judgment. Just because something terrible happens doesn't mean that God endorses it or condones it. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus addresses a similar question of why God does certain things. A group asked Jesus why God allowed Pilate to kill some worshipers as they made sacrifices. Jesus, in response, brings up his own example of 18 people who were killed in a freak tower collapse. And many in Jesus' day wondered why in the world that happened. Why would God let this happen? But then, much like God's response to Job in the Old Testament, Jesus simply doesn't give them an answer. Instead, he uses those stories of a freak tower collapse and an unspeakable tragedy where worshipers were killed. Jesus uses those stories to make a very short point. Life is unpredictable, and life doesn't last forever, so repent of your sin. So in summary, we don't always know why or when God does some things directly or allows other things indirectly. Whether it's the flood of Genesis 6, or the examples in Luke chapter 13, or the natural disasters we read about in the newspaper, or any other suffering in our world today, we don't always have the answers. And we should be very careful in claiming that we know why God does something, or why God allows something, unless it is very clearly laid out in Scripture, we should be very, very careful. But as we wrap up the story of Noah, look back to Genesis chapter 5, starting in verse 28. A very short, easy to overlook passage about Noah. We read there When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So when Noah was still a baby, his father, Lamech, had very high hopes for Noah. Maybe Noah was the one who would reverse the curse from the Garden of Eden. Maybe Noah was the one who would bring the relief that sinful mankind was already looking for. And where we left off in chapter 8, Lamech's hope looks pretty good. The flood is gone, the ark is empty, the righteous and obedient Noah worships God, 
And Noah can finally correct all the stuff that Adam got wrong. But sadly, Noah's life ends on a low note. And we discover that he's not quite the hero that Lamech hoped he would be. Reading Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant as well. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So Noah's story ends quite similar to the way that Adam's story ended. Noah sins, just like Adam did. Noah ends up naked and ashamed, just like Adam did. Curses are issued, just like with the sin of Adam. And Noah dies, just like Adam did. So while the flood does tell us something about just how seriously God takes sin, we also learn that it will take more than a flood to make the world new. And it will take more than a flood to fix the problem of sin once and for all. Because sadly, Noah's not the hero that Lamech hoped he would be. Mankind has to continue waiting for the promised deliverer of Genesis 3.15. Mankind has to keep living with that curse of Adam and Eve, after all. But that promised deliverer would come, though it would be much later than Noah. That promised deliverer, of course, is Jesus. Think about the ways that Jesus differs from Noah. Jesus is the righteous man who didn't escape the horror of God's judgment by getting onto an ark. But Jesus took the horror of God's judgment against sin on himself as he hung on a cross. So while Noah was admirable in many, many ways, he isn't really a hero. And the flood was never meant to fix the world. Ultimately, Jesus is the hero of the whole biblical story. He's the solution to the problem of sin. The one who took God's judgment on himself rather than being spared from it, even though he was sinless, even though he was perfect. So in the end, as we'll see throughout the book of Genesis and as we see throughout the entire pages of the scriptures, Jesus is the hero of the biblical story. And that's why we worship him. That's why we trust him. 
And that's why we obey him. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these pages of scripture that we think we know, but don't always know as well as we hope we do. Thank you for these stories that are at times uncomfortable, at times avoidable, at times we just read over them because we don't want to wrestle with them. But Father, thank you that through stories like this one, we get glimpses of who you are. We get glimpses of how you do things. We get glimpses of the things that you care about, the things that you want to address, the things that match up with your will for the world and the things that oppose your will for the world. But Father, thank you that ultimately we see this revelation of your character, this revelation of your desires through the story of your son. Father, the story of your son brings it all together. Everything we read in the pages of Scripture all leads up to that cross and that empty tomb. And so, Father, I pray that we would keep that in mind whenever we read Scripture. Whatever passage we're reading, whatever story we're studying, ultimately it all points to the cross. And that is our hope and that is our joy. And, Father, thank you that Christ took our judgment upon himself. Thank you that Christ took the judgment for sin that we deserve. We deserve to be punished. We deserve to be drowned in the sea like the people of Noah's Ark or or the people of Luke chapter 18 with millstones around their necks. We deserve that. And yet you are good, and yet you are gracious, and yet you are kind to us. And Father, that ought to leave us even more in awe of the cross than we were before. So Father, thank you that you do not let sin go unaddressed. Thank you that you were holy and powerful and good. And thank you that you did not let sin go unaddressed in our lives. That you sent Christ to the cross for our sin. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.
after service this morning, just a few reminders, mainly about prayer. Uh, number one, as we mentioned, uh, we're very happy for the Corrigan, so please pray for Mike and Kelly and Sayla as they get used to this big transition. Uh, we're very grateful that uh, Sayla is here. And then, of course, we ask that you pray for the Montgomerys. Uh, many of you already know that Dennis had surgery a few weeks back. He's still doing well, uh, doing better than he did back in the fall, uh, still dealing with a lot of pain, um, but doing okay. So please continue praying for Dennis and Sarah. And then also pray for Terry, who couldn't be here uh, because of his neck problems. I made fun of his mustache, but in all seriousness, pray for him. We should be praying for him that he recovers and, and feels better. So, And again, as always, we always say it on Sunday mornings, but we really do mean it, that if you have questions about our church, if you have questions about Christ, if you have questions about anything that we talk about here at Prairie View Christian Church, things in the sermon or things from communion, why we do things the way we do them, feel free to ask one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to talk to you, happy to answer those questions as best as we know how. But as we close our service, let's pray one more time, and then, of course, we hope you have a great Sunday. So let's pray. Again, Father, thank you for who you are and for what you do. Thank you for bringing us here safely, and we ask that you get us home safely and get us ready for the week ahead. I pray that we would shine as lights and everywhere that we go and everything that we do, that we would proclaim your death until he comes, not just when we take communion, not just when we sing songs, not just when we come to church, but that we would proclaim the truth of your son in so many different areas of our lives, that the truth of your son would just permeate every single area of our lives, and, and people would learn more about Christ simply by being around us. So, Father, we ask that you be with us as we leave here, be with the requests we mentioned, be with requests that are unmentioned. Uh, Father, I know that you know all of them, and we know that you know all of them. And so, Father, we ask that you be with each of us in the ways that we need you to. We love you. We thank you for Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen.